Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where you can bully anyone you want so long as your God tells you to. More on that later. Wow. You can now find us online at freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts, or you can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville. 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, or streaming at the brand new publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio, my fellow doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Beam. Hello, everyone. Teen pop sensation, Justin Schieber. Hello. And Dr. Professor Luke Gaylord. Morning. Uh, to start off today, just a little follow-up on a, a story we've uh, touched on a few times. Uh, the end of the world which did not occur, despite Harold Camping's predictions, um, he has surprisingly actually kind of almost apologized for uh, mispredictions of the end of the world. Um, he, came, he said, uh, of course, we remember back in May, May 21st, when the rapture was supposed to happen. Right. And very quickly afterwards, he said... It did happen spiritually. Yes. Exactly. Now you got to wait until October. What do you 21st. mean was supposed to happen? Right. And, uh, and he said then that uh, God has stopped saving people. If you weren't saved before May 21st... You're not going to. Oh, that's the cutoff date, I see. That was the cutoff. Well, it's gotta, you got to cut off somewhere. But from <laughs> Harold Camping's statement, which came out a week after his uh, uh, missed apocalypse, he said, quote, When it comes to trying to recognize the truth of prophecy, we're finding that it is very, very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't Christ return on October 21st? It seems embarrassing for family radio, but God was in charge of everything. No, it is embarrassing for family radio. Mm. And, and more than that, it's actually very bad for all of the people who believed you and sold all their earthly possessions to buy billboards and all mm. this other stuff. So yeah. embarrassment is kind of the least of your concerns. But uh, he kind of apologizes. This is perhaps my favorite part of his statement. Incidentally, I have been told that I said back in May that people who do not believe that May 21st should not be the rapture date probably had not been saved. So he's been told that yeah. he said. Weird. In fact, he did say it. He's, um, well, he's getting up there in age. Yeah, and, he's 90 yeah. years old and actually retiring um, very soon. And you know how it is. You're rambling on the microphone to the radio and you say things like, you know, everyone who disagrees with me is going to hell. How can you be expected to remember yeah, exactly. things like well, that? Well, especially when you say it so often. Right. He, he goes on to say, I should not have said that and I apologize for that. Yeah, so um, <laughs> I, I think it's the closest thing we're going to get to an admittance of um, I'm a lunatic. He, he goes on to say, too, that, you know what, we probably can't actually know 
when the world is going to end. Prophecies are so complicated. There's a lot more stuff that um, I need to get into, and, and frankly, I don't think we can ever know, which is funny coming from the guy who owns the website, wecanknow.com. Mm. <laughs> So he certainly changed his tune, um, ate a little bit of crow, but, uh, you know, if you are foolish enough to follow him, you're still out of luck. Well, that was a very, very long life lesson to have to learn. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Thank thank goodness many of us have learned that you cannot turn to the Bible for a reliable blueprint to the future. Well, of course, he still believes that. He just believes it's harder to interpret than That's he, true. he had it's originally just, imagined. It's just so. difficult. Anyway, moving on from Harold Camping, who has a rather small following, let's talk about megachurches, shall we? Justin. Back in uh, January of this year, Iowa Republican senator uh, and member of the Senate Committee on Finance, Chuck Grassley, he releases findings, a rather lengthy investigation that's been that started back in 2007 of six major megachurches that are kind of like media based. These these huge. Are we talking like the um, the one that uh, the gay guy was at? Oh, that doesn't narrow it down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I yeah. continue. Ted Haggard's church. Ted Haggard's church. Well, so, so he wrote he wrote these guys back in 2007, asking for detailed information about how they're using their finance and yeah. how that relates to their tax-exempt status. Right. Well, um, Crethrow, Dollar, um, Joyce Meyer. Yep, uh, Benny Hinn, Paula Benny White, Hinn. Oh, wow. Eddie Long, Crethrow, uh, Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, and, and Joyce Meyer. Yeah. Now, because these are churches, they're not actually required to give this information out mm-hmm. uh, unless there was an IRS, an, an IRS audit. And right. even then... Uh, they're limited as to what information they can demand. Because of the separation of church and state, because of the uh, the fact that churches in this country don't pay taxes, they're right. tax-exempt. Right. Uh, so in this review, uh, Grassley states his goal, quote, My goal is to help improve accountability and good governance so tax-exempt groups maintain public confidence in their operations. Mm -hmm. And so what were the results? Uh, He's been doing this since 2007, and and earlier this year he gave the results. Uh, He said, uh, quote, Of the six ministries, Joyce Meyer Ministries responded fully in Grassley's inquiry and joined ECFA in March 2009. Um, Benny Hinn, of World Healing Center Church also provided complete answers to all questions. Both ministries wrote to Grassley to explain they have undertaken significant internal governance reforms. Um, And then later in in the review, uh, it says, four ministries either did not provide any information or provided incomplete information. Uh, Randy and Paula White of uh, Without Walls International Church, Eddie Long of New Birth Ministry, Baptist Church, and Kenneth Copeland of Kenneth Copeland Ministries uh, submitted incomplete responses, and Creflo Dollar of World Changes International Ministries declined to provide any information at all. We've talked about Dollar before on the show, right? He's one of these big prosperity gospel right. guys. Mm-hmm. Does he run all those? Uh, named dollar. Yeah. He runs those dollar stores, right? The yeah, that's Dollar right. General, yeah, Dollar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's always been confusing to people because they get in and they expect everything to They're be a dollar. They're everywhere. Right. 
So now, now uh, Grassley is asking the EFCA or the ECFA. Uh, this is the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability to join the conversation with recommendations from the ministry community uh, concerning a series of, of legislative proposals prepared by his staff. Now, the ECFA is uh, a kind of commission on accountability for policy and religious organizations. These these people formed this new committee but this to is, handle these questions. So this is a Senate committee, not a committee of the... The churches themselves. The ECFA is the Evangelical Council for Financial okay. Accountability. So this is just a group of of evangelicals that value uh, right. fiscal um, transparency and accountability. At, at least theoretically, but they're the ones exactly. who are, who are the evangelicals are advising on what sort of regulations should be put on. Right. It does seem it does seem strange. It sounds a little bit like Wall Street, doesn't it? <laughs> but but uh, I, don't, it seems, I don't think it's right. There. Right, they're simply going to be tossing these questions over and uh, giving recommendations to because they're not they're not actually a they're not being funded right. government. It's not a governmental body, right? At all, and so they formed their own little committee. And so in this Baptist Press article, it kind of highlights these main issues that they're going to be talking about. They actually have a pretty good standing this this group as as being um, for you know fiscal responsibility and. And things like this. So, some of the questions are that they're going to be assessing are whether the income tax exclusion for pastoral housing allowances should be limited. Because, of course, some of these people have mansions. Yeah, several. Yeah, right. Yeah, probably all of those people on the list live right. in very, very exactly. uh, sizable homes. I mean, this allowance was in place to assist church leaders with modest incomes. You know, to have a place to live. Not so that they can have 15 bathroom mansions and... And not pay tax. Right. The country parsonage exemption or whatever it, it's <laughs> right. called. Yeah, right. because uh, this is before the era of mega churches where yeah, you exactly. really couldn't feed yourself probably on a church income alone or at least, or house yourself yeah. at least. Right. And so this was kind of a protection for them. Not saying that was ever a good idea to essentially give a government grant for ministers housing exactly. but at least it was a different time a different context right. in which that rule was was made and up. um another question that they're going to be uh, assessing is whether churches should be required to file the highly detailed irs form 990 that other nonprofits must file the ecfa historically has opposed forcing churches to file the form arguing that it would lead to excessive entanglement between church and state and uh this to me, seems like a, a pretty crappy objection. Yeah. Uh, they suddenly begin to worry about church and state separation when they have a lot of paperwork to do. Right. Yeah. Right. That seems a bit and it's, strange. It's not saying you file this paperwork so you can be taxed. It's you file this paperwork like all other nonprofits to right. say, this is the reason why you're not being taxed well, because yes. this is how the money is being used. To prove exactly. you're, be, you're deserving of a tax exempt status, right. that this aren't, these aren't really – you're not having businesses on the side. And but, of course, sort of the thing. implication is they don't want to turn it over because they're not always using their money in exactly. legitimate ways. Yeah, so the next question uh, is whether the current IRS audit protection for church leaders should be repealed. Uh, should the IRS be able to investigate individuals – who are church leaders, uh, if there are signs of, uh, you know, that they're benefiting a bit too much from their church's tax-exempt status. Right. 
Uh, current law has restrictions on the IRS's ability to do these investigations. And uh, another one is whether legislation is needed to make clear that love offerings, which are just direct oh, givings that from, like <laughs> from the congregants to the actual uh, church leaders oh, okay. without you know putting it in the official tithing bowl, right? So these are direct gifts. This is just should these pastor, be taxable? Here's a fin for right. salvation kind of thing. Um, and so they need they want to know if they need to make it more clear that actually these are taxable incomes. Yeah. And because because a lot of people are apparently uh, conveniently not going to be claiming those. Yeah, it's it's like getting a tip, right? If you're a waitress. Right. That is income that should be right. taxed. It's often. Yeah, it's not. it's being given as an implied service. I yeah. mean, the the pastor is apparently giving spiritual guidance of some sort, and and they're giving their appreciation. So the article states here, quote, among other issues, the commission will examine the current IRS prohibition on church involvement in political campaigns. Grassley's staff said the issue is mostly unrelated to the other issues, but it remains one of the greatest sources of tension between the IRS and religious organizations, and that advice on this matter would be beneficial. So that's the another issue they're going to be examining. So, And, and there's no timeline to this commission as to whether what they're going to come up with, but it seem seems encouraging. Fast, it but, seems encouraging, at yeah. least the kind of discussions they're going to be having. I think the reason why this was even needed in the first place is that many evangelicals are uncomfortable with what some of these megachurch pastors and televangelists are doing. I believe also the reason why some people like Joyce Meyer are actually participating in this is because they're catching a lot of flack. As oh, yeah. as information trickles out about their lifestyle, about their income, you know, we know that Joyce Meyer, for example, is a multimillionaire. She has her own private jet. She shits on a $23,000 antique <laughs> marble toilet. I hope in it. <laughs> Sorry, I misspoke. <laughs> no, on it, Dave. Oh, and okay. then she has her servants come and clean it up. Well, it certainly doesn't stink. It probably stink. still works. <laughs> a basic, there's only so many ways that these things can work. That's so. true. That is true. Well, it, it certainly doesn't stink, whatever, yeah, of course. whatever she does. And, of course, if you are reading the Gospels actively and hearing things like it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven, mm. or that you cannot serve both God and mammon, or that to follow Christ you should sell all your belongings and give to the poor. It's only a matter of time before a few people are going to start asking questions. But actually what's really surprising to me is the amount of American Christians who actually believe that the huge amount of wealth and conspicuous consumption of their ministers is actually a sign that God has blessed them. It is actually a sign that they are righteous people. According because they're to... in that 1%, God must love them, right? Mm. Well, yeah, you may have heard of the term before, the prosperity gospel, yeah. or sometimes called the health and wealth gospel. A 2006 Time magazine poll stated that 17% of American Christians across denominations believe in the prosperity gospel. Wow. 17%. Yeah, I always thought that that was a pretty fringe movement. I did too. Yeah, um, not so much anymore. It's mostly associated with more charismatic 
sects of Christianity. Right. Um, but of course, charismatic and Pentecostalism in general is on the rise everywhere. The prosperity gospel is the belief that God has promised to reward the faithful with success, uh, not only success in their lives and in their businesses, but material wealth, great material wealth. Hmm. According to where you go, sometimes a clean bill of health is included in there, that these are basically right. your birthrights mm-hmm. as a child of God. The most important thing you can do, of course, to receive these promises that God has offered to you is to have faith, but faith without works is dead. Right. So how do you show that faith? You give it to your pastor. Yeah. <laughs> in the form of green paper. Yep. Yeah, by tithing, I mean, that's a bare minimum, giving 10% of your income, but also these love offerings. Right. I think everyone listening to the show is familiar with the rhetoric of these televangelists where they they basically put put forward this as a challenge. You know, the more you are willing to part with your money and give it to our ministry, it shows that you are confident that God is going to bless you. You should really look at this as more of an investment. You're just putting away a little bit of your income and God's going to Mm -hmm. return that all back. So any any apprehension to make terrible financial decisions just means that you don't love God enough. Exactly. And (laughs) and it works really well on elderly folks who sit at home and watch Benny Hinn and and those other people. They send off their check and then they just wait for God's blessings to come upon them. Luckily, if you're tired of waiting... There's any number of bestsellers that these prosperity gospel preachers such as Joyce Meyer or Joel Osteen have written. They they will tell you that there are many other ways to help manifest God's blessings in your life, often by cultivating a positive attitude, banishing self-defeating thoughts, or by meditating daily on God's desire for you to have abundant life. You know, the great thing about the Bible is that you can quote it to support just about anything. They actually can marshal some proof texts to support their prosperity gospel beliefs. Uh, Israel as a nation is collectively promised wealth and prosperity Mm. if they follow God's covenant. Or the message of the book of Proverbs seems to be over and over again that your character matters to your success. If you live a just and wise life, you will be rewarded and not just rewarded spiritually but materially as well. Of course, you can always find yeah. the other side I don't know of the if they story. Read Job or not. Yeah, if you read Job or Ecclesiastes, <laughs> the message of those books is saying the exact opposite. Life is meaningless. Yeah, bad things happen to good people, and mm. there doesn't seem to be any real connection between your personal righteousness and uh, the success in your life. So there's always that other side that you could quote too, but nevertheless they can squeeze a few proof texts out of the Bible to support their position. So what we've shown is that 17% of American Christians can read parts of the Bible. (laughs) Selectively. (laughs) But regardless, my point is I don't actually really think this prosperity gospel message comes from a careful reading of the Hebrew Bible and rediscovering these principles. As many of people have observed, The prosperity gospel message resembles the power of positive thinking much Mm. more than it does the Bible. If you've ever been to one of these megachurches, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
you you walk into these churches, and a lot of times they seem more like a motivational speaking seminar than yeah. they do an actual church service. Oh, absolutely, they've some of these mega churches they've removed any kind of religious iconography. You don't see a lot of crosses. No, often or right, very stylized. Modern look. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You'll find a highly stylized version of like a dove or something yeah, somewhere. Exactly. One of the most innocuous religious symbols you can find, but right. nothing. You'll find Jesus with a big smile on his face, hanging on a cross. <laughs> Buddy Jesus. He's got like right. cash in his hands. There's no altar. There's a stage uh, with lights, typically a, a video screen so that people can see the pastor. The minister's walking around the stage on his headset mic, you know, preaching the seven points to spiritual fulfillment, you know, some some sort of very stripped-down sermon that doesn't have a lot of mention of sin or hell or anything else oh, yeah. like that, but but nice and easily remembered seven-point lists of how you, you can achieve your spiritual right. goals. Where the only, like, religious idea there is the acronym that they make up. Grace. Well, that goes all <laughs> yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah. Receiving. Yeah. yeah. Many of the services in these mega churches have a self-help, positive thinking message to them. I mean, man, right. many of the ministries do too. You can join a weight loss ministry, or you can take classes boosting your self-esteem. You know, at, at Joyce Meyer's church. But what I was surprised to learn was just how great the similarities between this prosperity gospel teaching and the motivational speaking movement or positive thinking movement, whatever you want to call it, just how close philosophically they actually are to each other. Uh, what kind of opened my my eyes to this was reading Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Bright Sided, How Positive Thinking is Undermining America. Excellent book. I would definitely recommend it to our readers and the rest of Barbara Ehrenreich's stuff too. If if you're not familiar with her, she's she's a feminist, atheist, leftist uh, who cancer survivor. Yeah, and uh, and I believe she started off as a physicist uh, or a chemist or something. It's, it's she something has something in the sciences. Yeah, she yeah. Ha definitely has training in the sciences, and uh, she really, to me, is like the female equivalent of Christopher Hitchens in a lot of ways. She is not going to suffer fools gladly. She just eviscerates whatever she happens to think is against reason and logic. Well, in Bright-Sided, she turns her focus on the positive thinking movement. She has a chapter called God Wants You to Be Rich, where she explores mm -hmm. the ties between, between the positive thinking movement and these prosperity gospel preachers. I made this observation years ago, the first time I, I attended a megachurch, but I really chucked this up to you know, the general dumbing down of America in trying to bring in more seekers into their services, that they were emulating a different model. But I had no idea that you could trace the prosperity gospel and the power of positive thinking. You can trace it to a similar source. They both historically can be traced back to the New Thought Movement in the 19th Which century. Which is actually about not thinking very much, no. right? That's uh, <laughs> essentially how that works. What you get oftentimes in the positive thinking movement, you know, you hear about the law of attraction. It's the secret. Right, the secret right. thing. Hard enough about something you want. If you purge all thought, negative thoughts, right. um, if you want to lose weight, stay away from fat people because they will give you fat thoughts. 
Think thin thoughts. thoughts. Yeah. No, sir. That's that's part of. Yeah. The oh my god. And they believe this is like a <laughs> yeah. metaphysical. This is actually a property yeah. of the universe. Right. Like mm. attracts like. Uh, they'll try to explain it with quantum physics, right? Oh. Somehow the the Heisenberg uncertainty <laughs> the old... principle, <laughs> yeah. because because we can never know the position and momentum the uh, simultaneously of a particle, therefore. Your mind creates reality, and you can mm. control the physical world with your with your Quantum mind. Quantum mechanics does a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, and those of us who watch Breaking Bad know that the Heisenberg uncertainty principle is: I'm uncertain whether or not Heisenberg is going to kill me or not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one who knocks at the door. <laughs> So one of the ways that you can put the law of attraction to work in your life is through uh, techniques of visualization. You imagine the world as you would like it to be, and you focus on this, and this will help it actually become a physical reality. And then the other way is through kind of a rigorous program of self-monitoring your own thoughts and reprogramming yourself to be positive and optimistic all like the a time form of meditation right right speaking affirmations to yourself um, banishing all negative thoughts because those are going to a attract or manifest negative realities well when you actually look at what some of these very popular prosperity gospel preachers that what they're actually teaching it's strikingly similar let me read you a few quotes this is from Your Best Life Now by Joel Osteen. Oh. Hmm. Joel Osteen says, you will produce what you constantly see in your mind, almost like a magnet. His examples are getting out of speeding tickets, uh, finding a good parking spot, or getting a seat at a crowded restaurant. He'll actually talk about saying to God that I'm glad that this hostess favors me and I will be getting a seat soon and then you know it will magically happen wow uh, another one of these uh, Edwin Gaines from her four pillars of prosperity book uh, and when I read this quote notice the sense of entitlement in this mm -hmm. that you that is similar to uh, what you'd find in the secret the sense that the universe kind of owes you something mm -hmm. she's recounting this scenario where she wanted desperately to go to Mexico City and she didn't have enough money for the plane ticket. Mm. I sat down and gave God a severe talking to and I said, now look here, God, as far as I know, I've done every single thing that I know to do in order to manifest this trip to Mexico City. I've kept my part of the bargain. So now I'm going to go right down to the travel agent and when I get there, that money had better be there. Wait, so she's done everything mm. she can to make this happen. <laughs> Except getting the mm. money? No, 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 yeah, yeah. Except well, saving the money that she needs. When she trip. says doing no, things, no, 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 she no. means... It's visualization. Exactly. It wouldn't yeah, be, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, okay. By far the best, though, is Reverend Ike. And Reverend Ike. Barbara Ehrenreich didn't, didn't quote Reverend Ike a single time in her book, mm -hmm. and she really missed out on a gold mine because this guy, uh, Reverend Ike, died... Back in 2009, uh, but he Ike was Turner, right? No, <laughs> but Reverend Ike was huge in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, many call him the original prosperity preacher, though he isn't. But here's a few quotes from him from his website, scienceofLivingOnline.com. 
says, uh, using my practical mind science techniques, I teach the individual to build an ideal self-image of how he or she would like his or her life circumstances to be. And by visualizing these images in the mind and applying certain principles, an individual can bring these things into being. I teach the individual that they can be what they want to be, do what they want to do, and have what they want to have. He says, and one of my favorite passages from the Bible, Proverbs 23:07, as a man thinks, so is he. Now, actually, if you look up Proverbs 23:07, it's actually about it's actually about being insincere, uh, about <laughs> having having a host who's serving you a dinner and says, you know, enjoy all this food, but inside his mind, he's thinking like, damn, this is really costing me a lot of money, mm-hmm. and it's saying like he 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 is what he think what he's thinking inside, right. not what Rather he's showing, what he's his false yeah. exterior on the outside. So it has absolutely wow. no connection a, yeah. to this law of attraction thinking. It's, it's like those but, choose life phrases when you look it up, and it's basically like, choose life or I'll kill you, Israel. <laughs> Signed, God, love God. I just love the, what, mind science? <laughs> yeah, the is that a, is pseudoscientific that a terminology. Mind I, science. I, I, I hate when they use the word science for evil. It's it's <laughs> awful. I think what's really fascinating about Barbara Ehrenreich's account of all this, uh, basically she shows that the modern, modern positive thinking movement and prosperity gospel share a common ancestor in the new thought movement of the 1800s. Did this include the transcendentalists from the Emersonian camp? Yep, definitely uh, influenced by Emersonian transcendentalism, uh, little touches of Hinduism and all sorts of European mystical movements. Hmm. Uh, But she really, if we wanted to trace it back to an individual, she puts a lot of this on Mary Baker Eddy, who uh, listeners may recognize as the founder of Christian science. Uh, Basically, to uh, give this history in a nutshell... Uh, In the late 19th century, there was an epidemic of invalidism, mostly affecting middle-class women. Really, the symptoms were similar to today to what we would call chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, lack of energy, muscle soreness, headaches, uh, joint problems, and all sorts of things. Basically, people unable to get out of bed. And, of course, Mary Baker Eddy was afflicted with this particular disease. Now, just like modern-day chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, many people suspect it's a sham, that it's either psychosomatic uh, Mm. or not even real at all. The fatigue can be based on diet, can be based on any number of things. It might be uh, an umbrella term uh, that's covering a lot of different things that are going on. Like Freud's hysteria. Yes, that's right. Women are crazy because they have uh, uteruses. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, Mary Baker Eddy's therapist, Phineas Parkhurst Quimby, seemed to be of the same opinion. He believed that this was psychosomatic, that it was actually might have been a consequence of Calvinism, um, the kind of the guilt and constant self-examination that Calvinism 
uh, can provoke in I, a person. I have to say, you can never blame too much on Calvinism. <laughs> <laughs> Having been raised in it. <laughs> you would love Barbara Ehrenreich's yeah, book. Yeah, I, I, uh, Because read it. I think she's a little overzealous even in prosecuting Calvinism for its problems. But Quimby added an extra kind of metaphysical mm. quality to this critique. He believed that there really wasn't any kind of material world, that the world was all thought. I should add that Quimby was a... He's an idealist. <laughs> well, he was <laughs> he was a mesmerist. Oh, wow. He was, uh, he was an inventor. He tinkered around it with spiritualist beliefs. So he was attracted to all sorts of crazy metaphysical ideas. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's no material world, only thought. There's this all-encompassing mind or supreme intelligence or God, and the, the self is continuous with God. And so as a consequence, the true self is perfect. There's no such thing as sin. There's no such thing as illness. All of these things are illusions. And so he believed that he could cure these people suffering from this affliction just by talking them out of it, essentially, Hmm. Uh, telling them that the universe was benevolent, getting them to think positive thoughts. A lot lot of Eastern thought going on in here. You could see a lot Mm -hmm. of Hinduism uh, in that kind of idea. Now, after Quimby died, Mary Baker Eddy adopted this as her own belief and started the Christian Science Church, which you know still maintains even today that sickness is an illusion. They're very anti-medicine. Which is why Uh, Jim Henson is dead. And and generally as a movement, new thought caught on in in both religious and secular circles, embracing this kind of weird metaphysics and uh, this uh, anti-medical industry sentiment. The kind of anti-medicine stuff died down quite a bit as medical science improved so much over the years. For a little while, enthusiasm for that waned. So the new thought proponents kind of switched their focus to success, success in business and gaining material wealth. And you can really trace that all the way up to you know the mid-20th century with Norman Vincent Peale writing The Power of Positive Thinking. Uh, He Mm. quotes many of the New Thought favorites almost as often as he quotes the Bible. What Barbara Ehrenreich then shows, you can trace then this New Thought movement to charismatic preachers like E.W. Kenyon or Kenneth Hagin, who started the kind of Word of Faith movement, kind of the beginning of this prosperity gospel. And Hagin himself was friend uh, of John Osteen, Uh. Joel Osteen's father. Hagen also influenced the African-American prosperity gospel preacher Fred Price. Mm. Uh, Price quoted many of Hagen's book. Reverend Ike uh, was a big fan of Hagen. And you basically have all of these preachers tracing their thought directly back to this new thought movement. Wow. It's hmm. a, it seems like a, a fairly direct line, too. This isn't... Yeah. Uh... yeah. Or, for example, Norman Vincent Peale, uh, the author of Power of Positive Thinking, was a huge friend of Robert Schuller, the guy who built the Crystal Cathedral. Cathedral. They Mm. were personal friends. Which went bankrupt. Yeah. 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 Not enough positive thoughts. Peale was actually involved in building the congregation for the Crystal Cathedral. So, yeah, these ties are not superficial. They're actually – there's deep connections between these movements. 
like most bizarre New Age beliefs, their believers might be satisfied with their metaphysical or religious groundings for these doctrines. But if at all possible, if they can get any sort of scientific legitimacy for their beliefs, they'll jump on it right away. And some of this positive thinking, uh, law of attraction stuff has leaked its way into, well, would we say mainstream psychology, Luke? Or at least it's trying to. Yeah, in fact, one of the persons she takes out in the book and beats like a pinata is Martin Seligman, who was a former president of the American Psychological Association. Most people probably would remember his work, though, because he popularized the idea of learned helplessness. And this is uh, back in the 70s. A lot of his experiments were with like um, dogs and uh, who were who could have who were um, basically exposed to unavoidable shocks in a shock box. Hmm. And they and when they had the opportunity to escape later on when the barrier was removed for them to jump off the shock grid to a safe grid, they didn't uh, and, and in comparison to, to dogs who had control before. So his experiments were sort of making a parallel that people who are depressed, for example, or kind of beaten down, if they were given the sense that they don't have control over the environment – uh, when they actually do have control, they still make that mistaken assumption. Mm-hmm. There's nothing I could do. I'm just going to sit here and take it. And so his theories actually became sort of this, like the title implies, learned helplessness that, that one of the theories of depression or mental uh, illnesses is that people have um, been trained to think that their behaviors are not contingent on anything and they can just there's mm-hmm. nothing they can do about it. So mm. you can see how that when he he actually started pioneering this whole positive psychology movement because he thought that a lot of psychology is too much clinical psychology which just focuses on what's wrong with people. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, it's all mental illness, it's not mental health. Mm-hmm. So he and some other psychologists got, you know, started journals and started going on the stump and and basically saying that psychology needs to talk about positive things like human flourishing, virtues, uh, and how to, you know, and, and so you can see how that fits in with positive psychology. Yeah. Now, which doesn't seem all that bad to nope. me. Right. Not at all. In fact, uh, in fact, you know, the, the a lot of people thought that change was overdue. But what Barbara Ehrenreich takes him to task for, I think, was be maybe overselling it. There's this tinge, and this is where the religious aspect comes in too. That uh, that a lot of them have tried to to go from virtues and positive psychology into well, religion talks mm-hmm. about all those things too, and therefore religion can be a tool. For positive thinking. Now, some of our listeners might remember we've had on the show a couple of years ago, uh, David Myers, a psychologist from Hope College. He's one of the people who also has talked and published about positive psychology. And his theory is, if you go back and listen to that show, is that religion is a source of virtues and, and uh, you know, higher life satisfaction and things like that. Mm. Uh, now, you know, we, we kind of talked a little bit about some of his stuff when he was on the show. But um, the... The problem with some of this is is that in a nutshell, like like Aaron Rice criticism is where's the evidence? Where's the beef in terms of empirical studies? Mm-hmm. Uh, the more you try to nail things down to specifics like exact precisely how would thinking positively lead to certain changes, you know, uh, it's not only the lack of evidence also, but it's it's it lends the impression that if you do have problems or you continue to have, you know, depression or low life satisfaction it's not the external environment, my friend. It's you. It's your fault. Right. You're not thinking 
positively. Yeah. And one of the things that sets her off so much in her book was that like with her cancer treatment, that there was this implication that since you know the people who got better were thinking positively, I imagine my tumor being consumed by things, that if the people who continued to get sick you know, and they didn't get better, well – you know what are they doing wrong? There, it's yeah. it's you don't uh, want it enough. There's an, almost an implied link between the lack of success and your lack of positive thinking. It's you. It's not the external yep. environment. It's mm. something that if, because if you have control over it, well, why don't you take control then? So the um, and one, one of the ways in which I encountered this was I I had used a uh, textbook in my psychology of religion class that had went through some previous editions. One of the authors, uh, Hunsberger, had died, and they got a they sort of promoted a new author, Ralph Hood, and I noticed in my new fourth edition that there's a section, a new section on positive psychology. And so I'm like, oh, that's good. I wasn't aware that they had all this research, and I went through six, seven pages of this that basically talked about how these new character virtues. So the, the things that Seligman talks about as being virtues are things like, the because the, these the core virtues like wisdom, courage, humanity, justice, transcendence. Correct me if I'm wrong, but all he did to get to those was just surveyed a bunch of Greek and Roman philosophy. Yeah, what are the things throughout history that people have talked about Christian, as the yeah. as the as the uh, pinnacle of human flourishing? Yeah. Uh, he also had worked, by the way, with a guy named Chris Peterson, who's at University of Michigan. But they, when I started to look at, whoa, do they have any evidence that religion is associated with these things? All I saw were things like, well, it should be, because religious <laughs> themes talk about those things. Uh, so, for example, yeah. in the core virtues, uh, this is still in its, uh, it's still in its conceptual infancy. As a result, many ideas have yet to be empirically tested. What we can say, though, is that religion speaks considerably about what is right about people. Oh, okay. Oh. And if it speaks about that, well, then it must be connected. It must, be, yeah. must be good for you. So oh. after each section, it was like this, you know, oh, religions contain things about wisdom and about uh, courage. So, you know, I guess it must be linked. Seligman also, the, another thing that's got some controversies that he's actually, and we've talked about this before, I think, on this show, is he's been working now with the military mm -hmm. uh, as part of their uh, fitness indicators, like this program uh, to have more uh, mental resilience oh, yeah. among yeah. recruits. And so we've talked, uh, listeners might, might be familiar with our beef about the assessment instrument, which can, one of the dimensions of which was spirituality or spiritual right. well, wellness. Mm. And that if, obviously, if you're an atheist, uh, you would score low on those questions <laughs> and we have reports of soldiers who are otherwise you know, right. high performing who just who come back with this feedback that they get the computer prints off just saying you need to work religious. on your spiritual yeah. wellness you know right, well, right. they're designated as being unhealthy in some sort of way right. mentally mm -hmm. for no other reason than they're just non-religious yeah and so again the the uh, not to say that psychologists shouldn't work to you know, help the military with their science. But one of the implications is, you know, it's if you're a, a problem uh, as soldiers, it's not because you're involved in, in two intractable wars and, have, you know, watch your buddies get blown up. It's right. because you're just not uh, thinking po positively yeah. enough. You need yeah. to go to more prayer services. In fact, I'm going to order you to go to more prayer services. Yeah. And, yeah. and it still it downplays sort of external reality to some extent that some times your life does suck. It's not that you're thinking negatively about it, but that there are you you're know, just social you're just aware of the <laughs> exactly, uh, and so she also talks about. Erin Reich talks about in her book about some of the with, and this 
cross-references with her earlier books uh, like Beta and Switch and uh, Nickel and Dimed. Uh, some people might be familiar. She went undercover as a waitress and tried to sort of make it on a waitress mm-hmm. salary in Nickel and Dimed. And then for Beta and Switch, she went to all these like business seminars that basically teach you, you know, if you are fired or unemployed and you can't get a job – you know, you need to to project positivity. Of course, who would want to hire you when you're a sad sack like that? You need to sort of figure out what you are doing wrong and right. buck up. Mm-hmm. And so she critic she took that apart as as again blaming the person themselves rather than some sort of systematic right. structure for why she, we have. She did that with cancer too. She, yeah, the, she the had uh, breast cancer, and she very <laughs> very outspoken against the uh, pink positive, let's all, you know, keep a good attitude about having cancer. And she, of course... uh, Yeah, she reads these cancer magazines where they're talking about, well, cancer be... Chemotherapy can be an opportunity to slim down and lose weight. Oh, my God. And become a better you. Really? Yeah, well, and she quite quite understandably was outraged by how paradoxically how demeaning these magazines were yeah. that were trying to make people more upbeat and uplifted about their wow. their disease. Yeah, and so the, 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 one of the critiques, I think, is that that she makes of this positive psychology movement is that it, it perpetuates the idea, it downplays the role of systemic effects. Why would you work to change the system mm-hmm. if it's just you? You yeah. just need right, to right. change your thinking. And as some of you guys I might be... Herman Cain said something like that. Yes, recently. if you're unemployed, it's your fault. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's where I was going because there's some actually some some surveys that came out. I've quoted on the show before of uh, surveys from the Pew Forum, uh, which who have scientific research studies. Well, their latest survey actually has to do with economic mobility and economic conditions mm-hmm. uh, and social inequality. And what they found was is that there seems to be a disconnect in America between what people think is the best type of society. We have this mobility where you could just, you know, it's all up to you. If you want to lift yourself up from poverty and get an education, you can do that. When you look at us compared to the other countries, we're actually one of the least mobile Mm -hmm. uh, countries. That is, when you look at it statistically, uh, people tend to be stuck in whatever class they are born in, uh, factors that are outside of their control, where you live, right. pockets of poverty, your parents' education. But Luke, percent you're going to stay the 99%. But Luke, I bet you we're a, a much more optimistic people yes. than those so other, na- than those other nations that have uh, reality, a better reality that's, than us. If you, look at some, if you look at some of their documents, there's these graphs like, you know, of what people think is the case. Like, d- does our country, does it rely on purely on your own uh, meritocracy where you could uh, it's all up to you to to move out and people yeah and people yeah. say yes because we have this american myth that it, that if you want to get ahead you can get ahead but when you look at the numbers that there's this there's a disconnect actually you know what the countries that have the most social mobility are denmark sweden Norway, France, Those godless heathen countries, these godless heathen socialist countries with taxes and yeah. regulation. Right. Th- that is the ones. The countries with the most taxes and the most regulation are the ones with the, the most, most mobility. mobility. But see, here in America, we have people like Oprah that we can look at and go, look, she, look, she did out it. Poor, and she is now one of the richest people in the world. Right. So, and we hold that up as though it were the standard rather than the exception. Anecdotes are more salient than data. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, and so the the, the connection, I, the, like this unholy trinity that she makes between po- between the positive psychology, the economic 
implications of positive psychology and then the religious implications like you talked about with prosperity gospel all sort of focus on diverting attention away from actual systemic effects right. of yes. things uh, that that is you know with the prosperity gospel if you're poor and that's by the way that's the rage in, in Africa now with a lot of these Pentecostal mm-hmm. churches mm-hmm. they'll have a, a guy who said look at me I'm a driving a Cadillac now look at my gold bling you can have that too and it's very appealing to people who are right. poor to say well I don't see that in my life but it must be true because look at that guy mm-hmm. yeah right. and so that's that's what motivates a lot of these people is if they can't manifest if they don't see any evidence that that simply thinking better or, or you know, just working hard is working for themselves, that causes a lot of dissonance. Like if that's wrong, the whole system is, is wrong. Yes. So it's right. actually dissonance reducing to see examples of people who say, oh, don't, you know, don't worry about that. If Look at me. If you work hard and think positive thoughts, you'll get ahead, my friend. And that's very – that's what's so seductive about it. People send in those checks like the old ladies you talked about mm. because they want to believe that. Otherwise, yeah. the system is, you know, the, the system itself is not functioning. And, and if you do wake up from the dream and look at the actual world and how it really is, you're promptly encouraged to, no, don't be negative. Don't, those are exactly. self-defeating right, thoughts. Right, right. And you're actually causing this badness by focusing yeah, there's, there's, on those negative there's thoughts. There's also a study that came be out last, um, uh, last month that found out that the, soul, the societies that have the greatest inequality also have the most biased self-perception. That is the most jacked up self-esteem mm. out of all mm. relation. Uh, and, and the linkage was made between uh, in societies that are really unequal, there's a tremendous amount of pressure to justify, like, how could that possibly be? We're mm-hmm. number one. Where and so you basically plug – yeah, you basically plug your ears and say it can't be true. I'm really uh, – you know, I am – I have esteem. I am important mm-hmm. and it's flying in the face of all reality. So that's how those – that's how all these th- things connect, the, the, the religious aspect, the social inequality aspect and the positive psychology aspect. Well, and that's probably why they're going to continually hate us people who are negative. <laughs> who, uh, you mean realistic? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who, uh, who are party poopers and actually remind people of, no, sorry, you don't have any justification for your religious beliefs. No, sorry, your society is not the greatest nation on the planet because uh, we're trying to shake them out of their illusions. That's right. Uh, shall we go on to some polyatheism? Well, uh, this week in polyatheism, we look at a creation story containing more bodily fluids than a German porno. Wow. This you went there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This may not come as a surprise to everyone, but this creation story comes from the land of the rising sun, Japan. It starts off with the brother-sister team of gods, Izanagi and Izanami. Actually, it doesn't really start with them. There's a few generations of gods before them, but this is where the creation of things other than gods begins. One of them can turn into a tiger, and one of them can turn into water. <laughs> yes, any form of water. <laughs> is this the same story that the um, that the we're talking about the demonic sex thing that the guy was talking about from the Dominionist movement? No, no, I don't know what connection. You know, because we talked about yeah, that in yeah. the last episode of the sun goddess having sex with the so and so. Yeah, the sun goddess will will show up, so we'll get to her in okay. a minute. But uh, she's not here yet. 
So Izanagi and Izanami fall in love with each other and decide to get married. Yes, they're brother and sister, but this is mythology, so incest is the rule rather than the exception. They perform a wedding ceremony wherein they each walk around a column from either side and meet in the middle. Izanami's first mistake, aside from wanting to marry her brother, of course, was in greeting him before he greeted her. Shockingly, the people who brought you vending machines of used underwear and more schoolgirl porn than the Vatican Library are not terribly progressive on women's issues. Schoolboy porn. Yeah, Yeah, that's the Vatican Library. That's where where they be. That's where the analogy breaks down. Uh, (laughs) What does that fit in the Dewey Decimal System? (laughs) fallacy. Uh, and because Izanami spoke first, rather than deferring to her husband, she is punished by giving birth to a leech monster and a disappointing island of some sort. Now, in order to ensure that all of their offspring don't come out all terrifying and malformed, Izanagi and Izanami uh, take a mulligan on that ceremony and re- redo their wedding. This time, Izanagi speaks first. This is our ideological myth to explain why guys should always be the ones to ask the girls out and not the other way around. Hmm. As with many morals from myths, this one should be ignored. Amen. Especially if you like a guy who's really shy, kind of chubby, and terrified of rejection due to deep emotional scars from his childhood. I'm just saying, if any of the girls in high school who reportedly liked me had asked me out, I would have said yes, and my high school and college years would have involved a lot less crying myself to sleep. Just saying. That pretty much covers everybody and most of our listeners as well. I, uh, I know my audience. Our show is both disturbing and therapeutic. <laughs> it's true. Positive thoughts. Uh, anyway, rather than uh, getting it on and making babies the traditional way, they start out with um, Izanagi thrusting his bejeweled spear into the warm ocean waters, stirring it around a bit, and then withdrawing his spear. As he takes his spear out of the water, some salty water dribbled off the tip. Oh, it's, my This is getting kind of warm in here. What are we talking about anymore? <laughs> the first island of Japan. Now, do I have to spell out the metaphor here? Or are you oh, no, 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 no. Loud and clear. Loud and clear. Getting raped the earth with yeah. this huge spear and then ejaculated. <laughs> the and that's solidified into an island. We got that? Yeah. yeah which that, which that, island that is it? Like crystal. the Hokkaido, the North Island, or the Honshu, or the main one? Or the Okinawa? I, I believe it's the main island, yes. Because uh, I can imagine some school kid like, you know Mommy the... and Daddy, where did, where did our homeland come from? They... <sighs> So okay. the earth, does that mean that the Earth was probably dressed a bit suggestively? Yeah, that's exactly. It. So yeah, the was Earth was asking for it. <laughs> Why was she dressed that way then? Wow. Like a Japanese schoolgirl. <laughs> Izanagi and Izanami then move to this island and start making babies. The first batch become the other islands of Japan, and then they start giving birth to a bunch of other gods. Everything is going well until Izanami finds herself in labor with the fire god. A little firecracker from the very beginning, he destroys her from the inside out, and Izanami dies in childbirth. But before she dies, she loses all control of her bodily functions and vomits, urinates, and defecates out six more gods. Oh... 
this yep. actually is explaining a lot of comic books, isn't it? To though? me, yes. <laughs> especially if you like the uh, uh, there's this hentai. Um, oh boy. In a way, uh, this isn't all that different from regular childbirth, give or take some vomiting. Uh, and, of course, most labors are no longer fatal to the mother, so at least we've got gotten a little bit better there. But uh, with Izanami dead, Izanagi grows lonely for his beloved wife. That, or maybe he just didn't like being a single father to a bunch of unruly baby gods. Either way, Izanagi descends, Orpheus-like, into the underworld of Yomi, to retrieve his wife. It's pitch dark in Yomi, but somehow Izanagi is able to find his wife. Come with me if you want to live, says Izanagi. Izanami tells him it's too late, she's already eaten the food of the dead, which in this instance is dirt rather than pomegranate seeds, uh, like we see in the Greek story of Persephone. Dirt makes a lot more sense as the food of the dead, I think. Well, sure. It's tasty. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there has to be a way to get you out, Izanagi demands. Izanami explains that perhaps she can come up with something, but only if Izanagi promises that he will not see her until they have left the underworld. Izanagi agrees, and then, of course, his curiosity gets the better of him. If you know the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, you can maybe guess what happens next, although your guess is probably wrong. That night, he lights a comb on fire and uses it as a torch to see Izanami. Rather than the beautiful wife he lost, he instead finds that she is now a maggot-infested, rotting corpse. Well, duh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, he screams in horror, which wakes up his corpsified and gross wife. Uh, Izanagi bolts out of the room like I do when my mom brings up politics or religion, and Izanami chases after him. As any real zombie fan knows, of course, the living can always outrun the dead, and he escapes the underworld and seals it off from the world of the living, either with a boulder or with a river of his own urine. Hell, why not both? Uh, Izanami then swears that she'll get revenge on him by killing off a thousand people every day. Izanagi retorts that he will create 1,500 people every day. And, of course, this imbalance is what led us to 7 billion people on the planet. Well, but, uh, yeah. That's a discussion. for We're not time. counting zygotes, though, are we? Only in Mississippi. <laughs> uh, Good comeback. Yeah. Nice. After making his daring escape, Izanagi needs to bathe and wash off the stink of the dead from him like Rick Grimes after escaping Atlanta. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, forgetting his baby-friendly No More Tears shampoo, he gets some stuff in his eyes, and out comes Amaterasu, the the sun goddess, and from from his left eye, and Tsukiyomi, the moon god, from his right eye. And then, just to get one more bodily fluid into the mix, he sneezes out Susano, the god of storms. Of course, the story of these children continues on and includes even more excrement, but that's a story for another day. I think, you know, this is probably, I always wonder why, how Japanese could be used to eating things like octopi and all this like weird seafood. If you have that type of mythology, that's pretty much like no big shakes, you know, yeah, maggots exactly. and whatever. I'll eat the octopi. <laughs> right. um, Are you talking about octopi Wall Street? Oh, no, the little octopi, <laughs> the mollusk, man. Oh, 
Never mind. Uh, um. So there you have it, the story of Izanami and Izanagi, a goddess of creation turned goddess of death, and her all-too-impatient husband, just one more creation story worth not believing in. Well, moving on, I would say appropriately, from polyatheism, let's do uh, some shit list. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Well done. Well played, sir. Yes, thank you. Uh. Now, first off, Justin, as uh, as we just alluded to, we have in Mississippi an attempt once again um, to redefine the start of life at conception. So a uh, new law would uh, define personhood, which is, of course, anyone who's a person is protected by the Constitution. Right. Um, personhood usually relegated to that period after birth. Mm-hmm. Um, in Mississippi, they want to push it back to the moment of conception. Now, the problems with this are, are many-fold, of course. For one thing... Um, it, of course, would make abortion, all abortions, without exception, illegal. Right. And also, uh, if you happen to be an identical twin, you're only one, one half of a person, uh, according to this definition, because they split after the moment of conception. Oh. And uh, um, Identical twins only get half a vote? Yeah, exactly. Hey. And a mule. But, uh, interestingly, of course, uh, there's a lot of people who are pro-choice and uh, appreciate the law as it stands, uh, Roe versus Wade, that um, abortion is legal. Um, a lot of the uh, proponents of the pro-choice or of the pro-life movement are also against this law. Right. And why is that? Uh, well, because they see the potential for it not um, for it being challenged yeah. by the Supreme Court Absolutely. and them not getting the answer they want, and then this would kind of lock it up. Exactly. I mean, um, this is a good way to end people doing these personhood amendments right, because right. it oh, will good. be challenged. It will go to the Supreme Court, and even a very conservative Supreme Court is going to go. This is illegal. This is outstepping rovers, I hope. Uh, Yeah. I guess I can't say for sure. So a lot of the the anti-abortion activists are saying, please don't do this. This This is going to work out poorly for us. Same thing happened for uh, in California with with Proposition 8. Let's hope they do. Yeah. So we also have on our shit list this week, atheists. A particular atheist group, um, you guys all heard about this, right? The Backyard Skeptics, which is a cute name. Uh, it's a California group, um, uh, Costa Mesa, California, who put up a series of billboards about um, using quotes from the Founding Fathers and such mm-hmm. to uh, show their feelings on religion. Now, one quote they used was from Thomas Jefferson. And uh, the quote is, I do not find in Christianity one redeeming feature. It is founded on fables and mythology. Thomas Jefferson. Now, the reason this is on the shit list is that uh, Jefferson didn't say it. Hmm. This is an erroneous 
quote. And to be fair, we made a similar mistake here on the show uh, approaching four years ago, I think. I think it was quite early on. Yeah, it was a different quote than It this. was a different quote. Um, something about Jefferson saying that Christianity is, is the most perverted right. religion. And actually, he meant perverted in the sense of it it's twisted. Been corrupted. Its contents yeah. have right. been twisted yes. more than any other religious faith. Mm-hmm. Not the faith itself is perverted. As our listeners know, the, since Jefferson, who created his own Bible, he was more interested in the what Jesus actually said and considered right. himself Christian only in the sense of like you would be a, a so- Socrates follower that you believe in what he right, said right, right. and then he thought that the miracles and hoo-ha and supernatural stuff was accreted on afterwards by followers of Christ and right. that's yeah. what he thought well, were corrupt. As soon as we realized that we had quoted that, uh, that we had misused that quote, we promptly put ourselves on the shit list and said, yes. you know, uh, this is no different than what people like David Barton and the Christian Reconstructionists are doing, and we acknowledge that we did the same thing. We didn't properly source that quote, yep. and uh, yeah. Uh, and, and you know what? That That's what the Backyard Skeptics did, too, is they pulled down the billboard um, after just a few days because this uh, there was quite a bit of media attention, most of it very negative, like, Oh my God, look at how filthy these atheist liars are and that sort of thing. Um, they should have they should have checked it better, especially if you can put out a billboard for God's sake. Right, I mean, right. that, yeah. We can sympathize with the mistake, yeah. Uh, but yeah, at, at the same time, these we all need to learn from <laughs> these examples. Exactly. A lot of times uh, skeptics uh, will find... Quotes like this online, and my God, I mean, Jefferson is quoted as saying everything, including stuff that Mark Twain really said and vice versa. But it's real easy for us to go, yes, he's agreeing with us. This is a great quote. Slap it up on a billboard. But you really have to be skeptical even of uh, these sorts of things. So uh, to their credit, they did take it down. Um, they acknowledged that the, the quote was erroneous, but... Um, you got to do that before you put the quote, the billboard up in, uh, right. in California. So probably the number one item on the shit list for today is happening right here in Michigan. There was a new anti-bullying law passed called Matt's Safe School Law. Yeah. Which in its original formulation was a great law. Yes. And it's named after uh, Matt Epling, who was an honor roll student who um, in 2002 killed himself at the age of 14 after being assaulted by anti-gay bullies um, on a, he was in eighth grade, it was a like high school visit day, hmm. like an orientation day. And, and on that day, he was harassed by the bullies, and a couple of days later, he ended his life. This is, of course, not the only person, uh, only story like this we've seen. Bullying is... Uh, especially gay bullying, is kind of the, the the key factor in most bullying. Whether someone actually is gay or not, that's kind of, that's the heart of most bullying. Right. So um, this law was introduced, and it was a good law that would help stop bullying until kind of at the last minute they added some language to it. Yeah, they slapped an amendment on it uh, that said, this section does not prohibit a statement of a sincerely held religious belief or moral conviction 
of a school employee, school volunteer, pupil, or a pupil and parent or guardian. Uh, basically saying that the whole basically of the law yeah, is yeah. <laughs> you are protected. The bully is now protected if they right. can claim some sort of moral or religious reason for why they are um, intending to do psychological harm. Right, right. <laughs> which which is great to me because the the you could try to depict this as what we're trying to do here is protect. The nice, good Christian kid who's just sitting at a table and, you know, somebody asks him, well, what do you think about homosexuality? And well, I happen to think that God's word says that it's it's uh, wrong and sinful. And I, I happen to think it's immoral. And then, you and know, everybody going, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I cannot believe that you said that. Well, that offends me. Speech, and that's or, hate speech. Yeah, and right. trying to ban that. Well, that's. That's not what this bill was prosecuting. This yeah. wasn't prosecuting free speech. The The bill made it very clear. It defined what bullying was. Yes. And it was uh, among the many definitions that you would get in a bill. It was, you know, intending to do physical or psychological harm mm -hmm. uh, to the person. And it has to be shown that it's a significant amount of harm is caused. This is not just a conversation where somebody gets offended over something. Right, right. But now with, with this amendment bill, yeah. in it, it it's, this bill has turned from an anti-bullying bill to making, actually providing legal justifications and loopholes for getting out of... But the, the irony of they're often, the conservatives often critique anti-bullying laws by saying that it's created a protective class for gays. Now that it's a protected class for Christians and then you, that's the irony. Of yeah, it. yeah. Here's uh, the Gary Glenn, the president of the American oh, Family geez. Association of Michigan. Yes, yeah. I know. Yeah. This guy. And this, he's, he's the guy who's, who's, he's one of the worst yeah, too. He's, he's actively trying to stop uh, a gay rights movement in Holland, Michigan, just up the yeah. road from us. Oh, right. um, yeah. He says, uh, we're pleased that the Senate has passed an anti-bullying bill that will equally protect all children from all bullying for all reasons based on their individual worth as human beings, not on being segregated into singled out groups for special protection. It's funny, the bill doesn't mention anything like that. So no. Gary Glenn knows exactly how much bullying it does come from anti-gay sentiment. Uh, and he recognizes that. But I actually, you know, I disagree with his understanding of things here, too. This will this is not going to protect Christian kids. I, I was going to say, if, because... if, if a Christian kid starts getting picked on, you know, like, wow, you're a homophobe. Are you a closeted faggot and blah, 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 blah. And for although I suspect if you can they say will immediately, <clears throat> this will be the one time that they go, oh, no, no, no. Atheism isn't religion. That is not a moral basis. You cannot mm. use your humanism <laughs> as a moral basis for bullying. Yeah, probably. That I mean, that's my suspicion. But yeah, yeah, this doesn't protect anyone no. because it would be easy to cook up any kind of moral justification. Yeah, for... and I don't know. I don't know how many uh, schoolyard fights uh, start with someone mocking some other some some other person for their epistemic irresponsibility. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but and I have to say credit to the the Democrats who the state and the state Senate who all voted no on this bill because of this amendment that was introduced and state yeah. Senator 
uh, Gretchen Whitmer, Whitmer said uh, that the law explicitly outlines how to get away with bullying and has created a blueprint for bullying. And that's exactly right. Oh, no, no, no. I just believe that God told me that you're, you smell bad. Or, right. you know, I, I mean, it's, it is the best possible thing for bullies is this law. Mm-hmm. Look, here's how you get away with it. Go ahead, claim your religious exemption. I, I keep that. imagining in my head like uh, like Nelson punching Millhouse and ha ha, and then having a contract out there. You can't prosecute. I'm religious. Yeah, it's it's absolutely <laughs> despicable, and and it's it's set in the guise of anti-bullying bill. This is a good yeah. thing. You guys should love this, right? It's a real insult that it's kept its 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 original name too. Yes. And of course, uh, the father of the the young man that is named after Kevin Epling um, has uh, decried the law. He said the law would basically say it's okay to bully or to ignore instances of bullying right. based on your own religious belief and or moral conviction, which is contrary to the rest of the bill. And it is definitively contrary to what I've been telling students to step in and step up when they see this taking place in their school. As a society, we need to decrease the bystander effect, those who sit idly by and watch as things happen. Right. It would be great if all those Christian groups who were starting to uh, express their apologies about uh, when, when was it in the last major media event of gay person committing suicide? I can't remember. Oh, um, oh. you got from Rutgers. Well, we were reading about it. We were actually putting some groups on the on the props list. Some of these anti-gay groups yeah, yeah. were I, finally coming out and issuing statements saying, "Yet yeah, we agree. We actually have to do to more stop. to address yeah. the violence and the and the constant." Psychological bullying that these uh, people go through, and we thought, well, that's that's great. If they're sincere, that's a a major improvement in in their outlook. Well, I I would hope that they would uh, back that up with action and s- speak out against this. Uh, before we sign off this week, I just want to do a couple of quick plugs. One of which ties in very closely to a lot of the things we've talked about today. I don't know if any of you have seen this story. They covered it, um, just started covering it, uh, Rock Beyond Belief, which is also available at Free Thought Blogs. Um, and I, I've been posting about it on Facebook a lot. Um, a woman named Esther, who's a uh, lesbian Marine Corps vet, uh, went to a VA medical center in Dallas to because she was feeling depressed, and she was told by a nurse there that her depression and anxiety were because she's gay. Not because Hmm. she has a medical condition which causes chronic pain, not because she was injured while serving in the Marine Corps, not because the entire time she was in the military she had to keep her sexuality a secret, but just because she's attracted to women. Um, It's an important story. Um, It's one that I have a personal connection to because Esther is a friend of a, a good friend of my wife's. Um, and I just wanted to offer to listeners who are interested in this story on the most recent episode of Reality Check, which is the other show that I host, we have, um, an interview with Esther and her story is absolutely, um, riveting, heartbreaking, uh, inspiring all at the same time. So that's the episode that will come out or has come out on November 9th, depending on when you listen to this. And 
Um, I think it's it hits on a lot of uh, issues that our listeners may be interested in. So check that out. Um, I also want to say if you're a fan of our show, you may also be a fan of the radio station that broadcasts us, Public Reality Radio. Check out the new and improved publicrealityradio.org. Uh, it's, um, so go to the website. You can listen online anytime you want, see what kind of programs we have, and you can get mobile apps for both Android and iPhone platforms. So even if you're not in West Michigan, you can listen to uh, Reality Radio wherever you go. We have a ton of science and skeptical programming as well as the most progressive and independent news and analysis you're going to find anywhere. Uh, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman, Big Picture with Tom Hartman, Culture Shocks with Barry Lynn, Jimmy Dore Show, Occupy Wall Street Radio, which I'm very excited about starting, bringing to our station soon. And, uh, of course, we have Free Thought Radio, Skeptically Speaking, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, Point of Inquiry, and really all of the best of the best in Godless Radio. So if you haven't checked it out yet, now is the best possible time to start listening. So with that out of the way, send your comments, questions, and challenges to doubtcast at gmail.com. Check out our website at freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts and all of the other cool stuff at freethoughtblogs. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter at slash doubtcast. Buy a shirt on zazzle.com slash doubtcast. And please keep writing those reviews on iTunes. We got a bunch after the last episode, and that made me very happy. Nothing excites us more than new reviews. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. Basically, people being bedridden and unable to get out of bed. Right. Bedridden and unable. Basically, people unable to get out of bed. People just sitting in bed all day. And, yeah, and just staying where they are. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) We have about eight ones to choose from there. Sometimes I'm redundant and I repeat myself. I prefer non-ambulatory.